<laughs> Greetings, church. <laughs> I get to follow all that excitement <laughs> with the Word, the Word of God. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 28. Matthew chapter 16. What a joy it is for us to recognize what God is doing, to celebrate, and to just uh, have this shared experience together as a church family. So Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. Please follow along as I read from the English Standard Version. Matthew chapter 16, 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of ordination, for the gift of Rick, and for what you are doing. And Lord, that, that is a weighty charge that is placed upon pastors. And I pray that we as pastors would remain faithful to you. God, pour out your grace that we would remain faithful to you in life and doctrine. Be with us now, even as we listen to the voice of the chief shepherd, as he speaks to us through the living word right here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Sometimes teachers like to give a pop quiz, a surprise test, something that you can't necessarily prepare for. And I disliked these things. I disliked pop quizzes. I like to know when the test will be so I can prepare for it and over-prepare for it, so I can walk in feeling confident. I like to know when the paper is due so I can plan ahead, write my paper, get it done on time. I don't like surprises. I remember growing up as a child, going to school, growing up that I dreaded, absolutely dreaded, walking into a classroom and having a teacher tell us, class, there's a pop quiz. Put away your backpacks, your books, your notes, get out your uh, pen and paper and get ready for this pop quiz. Well, the purpose of a pop quiz is to reveal who has been a faithful student, who has kept up with the assignments and readings, and who hasn't been a faithful student. And Jesus, in our passage this afternoon, he is giving his disciples a pop quiz. And this, the answers to, the, to this pop quiz with these two questions, they're going to reveal something very important about the crowds, something very important about the disciples, and most importantly, he's, it's going to reveal the nature of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, who is inside the kingdom and who is outside the kingdom. If you're new to us at Risen Hope Church, uh, we're currently preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew is about a king, King Jesus, and his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And this kingdom, ruled by King Jesus, King Jesus is the lawgiver. He is the judge. He is, but, but he is also the savior for his people. And at this point in the Gospel narrative, there is a turning point in Matthew 16. It seems like at this point, the kingdom of God, everything that is described up until this point in terms of the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, seems to be called the church. The church. And so it's here this afternoon on this ordination transfer service that we're kicking off this six-part mini-series on the church. Brother Wick, Brother Pastor Rick, we are so excited that the Lord has raised you up to serve as a pastor over this flock Jesus, as the victorious Christ, when he died and then rose and then ascended into heaven, he gave gifts to his people. And Jesus Christ gave pastors who would, who would have responsibility over his flock, the responsibility to know the flock, to feed the flock, to protect the flock, to care for the flock. And this responsibility, this delegated authority that the chief shepherd has given to us as pastors, to given to us as under-shepherds, it's a tremendous privilege. It's a tremendous tri privilege to represent Christ and to take care of the sheep that he died for. And yet it is also a weighty responsibility. It's a weighty responsibility, Rick, because... As you know, all of us as pastors, we will have to stand before Christ one day and give an account for how we took care of his sheep, the sheep for whom he died. So it's a tremendous privilege and a weighty responsibility. The word pastor comes from the Latin word shepherd. That means we can't talk about a shepherd, we can't talk about a pastor without talking about the flock, the church. So that means we're going to slow down in our series on the Gospel of Matthew over the next six weeks and talk about the church. We're going to cover this section in Matthew 16, and we're going to see the church as a community of disciple-making disciples. We're going to see the sacraments of the church, 
baptism and Lord's Supper, these sacraments that mark out and distinguish those who are within the church and those who are outside the church. And we're going to see in this series the final victory of the church over sin and Satan and darkness and death, a final victory that's being worked out even here and now today in our local congregations as we fight against sin, as we make disciples, as we keep this body pure. But we're going to focus our attention this afternoon on chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, these first six verses, the section where Jesus gives his disciples a pop quiz. At this point in the narrative, Jesus has taught with authority. He's preached the Sermon on the Mount and other, other messages. He has worked miracles with authority. And at this point, people have responded in different ways to the ministry of Jesus. We, have, we see different people responding different ways. We see the disciples giving up everything to follow Jesus. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, we see religious leaders who denounce Jesus as satanic. Jesus casts out de- demons by the power of demons. And then between those two endpoints, you see everything in between, the mushy middle, the crowds. But Jesus is going to simplify this whole spectrum down into two groups of people, just two categories, those who are inside the kingdom and those who are outside, those who are, or in other words, those who are in the church and those who are outside the church. So follow along as we look at verse 13 of chapter 16, chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he's asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So Jesus gives his pop quiz in the city of Caesarea Philippi. A little bit of background. Caesar Augustus, this is the Caesar who ordered that census and everyone had to travel to their hometown to be counted. Caesar Augustus had given this town to King Herod. This is that King Herod who was king when Jesus was born. And later on, King Herod gave this city, after he died and passed on, the city was inherited by his son, Philip the Tetrarch. And Philip the Tetrarch, the son of Herod, rebuilt this city and renamed it in honor, uh, he renamed it Caesarea Philippi. He renamed it in honor of Caesar, who gave it to his dad, and he renamed it in honor of himself, Philip, Caesarea Philippi. And it's here in Caesarea Philippi, here in the heart of Gentile territory, heart of unbelief, the heart of pagan territory, that Jesus quizzes his disciples. You might think it's kind of odd for him to raise this question at this point in time. Wouldn't it be better for for Jesus to do that in Jerusalem, maybe uh, at the temple or maybe in a synagogue? But Jesus is on an unstoppable mission to advance the kingdom of heaven, and he does that in hostile territory. And you might feel like you're in hostile territory, but that's a good place because Jesus knows how to advance his word and advance his kingdom in hostile territory. So Jesus gives the first question to his pop quiz saying, who do people say the Son of Man is? And the answer, he gives, disciples give their answer in verse 14. Follow along in verse 14. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Some people thought that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. That's what Herod thought. Herod had beheaded John, and now he hears about this 
miracle worker doing all sorts of amazing things and teaching things, and he thinks that miracle worker is John the Baptist resurrected. Others think Jesus is Elijah. Elijah was that Old Testament prophet that was actually taken up into heaven in fiery chariots and never saw death. Some people thought Elijah would be coming back in physical bodily form. And still others thought that Jesus was Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who preached judgment against the temple and judgment against the nation because of their idolatry. But here's the problem. The crowds don't see him as anything more than Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. And here's the important part. The crowds weren't technically wrong. Jesus is a prophet. He does work miracles. He does speak for God. But they make a fatal mistake when they stop there. You see, admiration for Jesus as a teacher, as a prophet, that doesn't save you from your sins. Admiration of Jesus' teachings, his miracles, that doesn't save Sincerity doesn't save because you can be sincerely wrong. And the road to hell is sadly littered with those who thought well of Jesus. And so Jesus here turns the corner and makes things personal for his disciples. Let's look at verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And this you is emphatic. It's, but who do you say that I am. We're not talking about likes anymore. We're not talking about followers. We're not talking about what other people out there think of me. That question is now coming personally to the disciples and and now through the scriptures coming down through the ages to each one of us sitting here today. Jesus is turning up the heat and the scriptures come to us and ask, what do you believe about Jesus? What do we believe about Jesus? And in verse 16 and 17, Simon Peter answers. Let's let's look at 16 and 17. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter nailed it. He got it. 10 out of 10, 100%. He scored He hit the bullseye. Who is Jesus? Well, God the Father reveals him as God the Son and Messiah to the church. That's our big idea this afternoon. Who is Jesus? God the Father reveals him as God the Son and Messiah to the church. And I'm going to unpack this main idea under three headings, three points, all starting with the letter C. After sitting under Tim's preaching, I've come to appreciate his alliteration and his pneumatics. I don't think these are quite as cool as his, but maybe give me a couple years. Uh, But I'm going to unpack it under three C's. Confession, conversion, and consecration. The three C's, confession, conversion, and consecration. The first C is confession. Confession. Peter gives here the confession of the church. This isn't the confession of a criminal or someone who has done something wrong and they're owning up to it. The the word confession has a very different meaning that's used here. The word confession here means a declaration of belief, a declaration of conviction. And the definition of the church begins here. Understanding what the church is begins right here. 
what we believe about Jesus. For 2,000 years, the confession of Peter, this, this has been the dividing line between those outside the church and those inside the church. The dividing line, this confession distinguishes those who belong to Jesus, those who are within the church, and those who are outside the church. You see, the world might believe that Jesus is John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, a prophet, a good teacher, a moral individual, a guru, a spiritual, enlightened person, a miracle worker, but it stops there. It stops there. The church confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this confession, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, I want to take a few moments here just to break down what this means because, it is, because it's central to knowing what the church is and who is within the church. So this word Christ means anointed one. It means Messiah. And in Old Testament history, anointing typically pointed to one thing, the anointing of a king. King Saul, King David, King Solomon, the first three kings of Israel, they were all anointed. They were all set apart by God to be ruler and savior for his people. And Israel, up at this point, up in, you know, fast forward a couple thousand years, Israel was still expecting a future king, a future son of David who would fulfill all of God's promises and establish God's everlasting kingdom. I want us to read these words that God gives to King David in 2 Samuel 7 because this gives us the context for understanding who the Christ is. 2 Samuel 7, verses 9 through 14. This is God speaking to King David. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So this future king, this son of David, is going to take everything wrong with this world and make it right for God's people. He's going to give us rest from all of our enemies. He's going to give us a place of safety and security and protection. And he's going to give us an everlasting kingdom. And the person who's going to bring all of this about, who's going to establish this, is not just the Christ, not just the Messiah and King, but also a son. You catch that at the end? I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ, the, the Son of the living God? Well, He is the Christ, He is the Messiah, He is the King, the Savior for His people, but He's also a Son, the Son of God. He's the Son of God not in a biological sense, obviously, but in a relational and personal sense, which means in eternity past, before there was creation, before time, God the Son eternally existed with God the Father and God the Spirit in eternal joy and harmony and love and bliss. The Christian faith worships a triune God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three persons who make up the one true 
God. Three persons, one God. The glory and mystery of the Trinity. And in this passage, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is and has everything that makes God, God. In the doctrine of God, we sometimes theologians talk about a theology of negation. That when we talk about certain attributes of God, we can only talk about things that God is not, simply because our human words fail us. So that means we talk about how God is eternal. He's not limited by time. That God is infinite. He's not limited by space, matter, time, and energy. God is immortal. He's not limited by death. God is independent. He's not limited by anything outside himself. God is incomprehensible, meaning he's not limited by our own human understanding. There is one God, one God who is eternal, infinite, immortal, independent, and incomprehensible, and Jesus Christ is all that. He's all that. And as the living God, he's not, the, he's not a dead idol, but the source of all life. He is alive and the source of all life. And for 2,000 years, the church has been built on this confession, this understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the true and living God. He is the Son of the living God, God the Son. Anything less than that isn't Christianity. It could be a lot of things, but it's not Christianity. And there are lots of people in this country, even around the world, who might go to church. They might be religious. They might even call themselves Christians. But if they don't know Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of the living God, they are lost and outside of God's plan of salvation, outside of the church. There are churches that don't believe that there was a physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There are churches that deny that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is fully God and fully man. I once heard about a church in Canada that's being pastored by an atheist. There's lots of things out there that might call themselves Christians or pass themselves off as church, but this confession is central. It's definitional. It shows us who is the church and who isn't. Let's look again at verse 18 as we look at this, uh, as Peter giving this confession. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This confession, this definition of the church, isn't made by angels, but by a flesh and blood human being, by Simon, who is a spokesperson for the disciples. And Jesus gives Simon a new name, Peter, which means rock. And after giving him this new name, then he says, and on this rock I will build my church. And this phrase, this rock, most likely refers to Peter and his confession. This phrase doesn't mean Peter is the first pope. That would be inventing doctrine that simply isn't found in the Bible. But even though Peter isn't the first pope, he plays an important role in building the church as a first-generation apostle and disciple of Christ. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
Obviously, Christ is the cornerstone. The church is built upon Him. And yet the apostles and prophets play a foundational role because they are the ones who confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and they taught future generations to do the same. So that's the first C, confession. The second C is conversion. Conversion. Peter confesses, he declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because something else happened first. Conversion happened first. Peter responded to the gospel call through repentance and faith. And that gospel message is so important, we never want to assume it. I'm going to take a few moments here to summarize it like this. Jesus, as the Christ, the Son of the living God, He entered the world as as a human being, as a baby. And then, as a human being, He died on the cross as a sinless sacrifice to pay the penalty for the sins of all of God's people for all time. That means instead of punishing us for our sin, instead of sending us to hell for eternity for the ways that we have broken God's law and rebelled against Him, God punished Jesus in our place. To use the words of Isaiah 53, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Jesus was a chastisement that brought us peace, and by the wounds of Jesus we are healed. And after three days, Jesus rose from the grave. And the good news of the gospel is that anyone, everyone who repents of their sins, turns away from their sins, turns away from living for themselves, and trusts in Christ alone, God promises that He will forgive you of all of your sins and give you eternal life. And that's the good news of the gospel. And that good news changes everything. Conversion changes everything. Because once upon a time, each one of us, we had no interest in Christ or the church, or holiness. Self was at the center of the universe. But after conversion, God is at the center of our universe. This conversion brings about a radical change. Like Peter, have you responded to the gospel call? Have you given up everything to follow Jesus? The church is characterized by this confession and conversion. Confession defines who is inside the church and those who are outside the church, but conversion brings those who are outside the church into the church. And it's important here for us to see that confession and conversion happen as an act of divine sovereignty. It's all a work of God's grace. Let's look at verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Simon Barjona, another way of saying Simon, son of John, he was born again, not according to human effort, human merit, human intelligence, or a human plan, nothing within himself. In fact, the opposite happened. It was divine effort, divine merit, divine intelligence, a divine plan. And if you're here this afternoon and you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sins and you're trusting in Christ alone, It's because the Father in heaven revealed Jesus Christ to you. He divinely and supernaturally revealed Him to you. That means all of us were once on a road to hell and eternal destruction, and God supernaturally and sovereignly plucked us out of the fire and saved us. God didn't save us because we chose Him. In fact, the opposite. Jesus tells His disciples, 
You did not choose me, but I chose you. That means our faith is the effect. God's choice is the cause. God chose us, that's the cause, and then the effect is that we would choose him. God himself gives us the gifts of repentance and faith. And that's what we see all throughout the Bible, the doctrine of divine election. Matthew eleven twenty five through 26, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So God the Father reveals Jesus as God the Son and Messiah to the church, reveals it to the church, but hides it from everybody else. Let's see Matthew 13, 11. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And in Romans chapter 9, God reminds Moses that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. That means God chooses to extend his mercy and grace and love to some, but in his divine sovereignty as Lord of creation and Lord of all, chooses to withhold it from others. The doctrine of divine election teaches us that if if you belong to Jesus, that, that means God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, that God caused you to be born again. And that doctrine of divine election keeps us humble. And that reminds us that there was nothing in us that caused God to choose us over another person. That doctrine of divine election brings us comfort as God's people. That means if you belong to Christ, that means in eternity past, God predestined you. God called you to faith in Jesus Christ in time. God justified you, forgave you of all your sins, and God will one day glorify you. It's this chain of salvation that begins in eternity past and continues into eternity future. And if God has those two endpoints, surely he's got everything in between taken care of. He's got this in the middle. No matter what you're going through, you can rest assured that from eternity past to eternity future, your life is secure in Christ. So your life is secured in Christ even now. So confession and conversion lead us to our final C, consecration. Consecration simply means set apart, separated. In the temple certain vessels were consecrated. They were set apart for holy use, such as the altar or the Ark of the Covenant. And the evidence, one important key piece of evidence in your life that confession and conversion have happened is whether consecration has happened as well. Has God set you apart, taken you out of the world, and brought you into the church? One critical piece of evidence that you are a true convert, a true disciple of Jesus Christ, is that he has set you apart and he has gathered you with other disciples. And that's because Jesus' plan of salvation takes place in and through the church. Verse 18 says, let's look at verse 18 once again. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We're going to be unpacking this in the weeks ahead, but I want to zoom in on this phrase, I will build my church. I will build my church. Who is Jesus? God the Father reveals him as God the Son and Messiah to the church, to the church. 
And if you want to know, is this confession, is this conversion a reality in your life, then you need to ask yourself, has consecration happened to you? Again, has God brought you out of the world and has he brought you into the church? Has, you, has he brought you out of a life of sin and brought you towards a process of holiness and conformity to the image of God the Son? I once heard a preacher use this imagery. It was so powerful. It's, it stuck with me. He talked about going into a biology lab, to a biology lab where research was being done. There were parts of a human body that had been di dissected for research purposes. And he was walking around in there, and he saw a hand floating, along, floating in a jar up on a shelf in some alcohol, some other preservative. And then you look, he looked over to the side, and he saw a foot in another jar, again, floating in some kind of preservative. And as he looked around, it seemed so grotesque and unnatural to see different parts of the body all separated and all in these compartmentalized jars. It's unnatural because parts of a body were never intended to be disconnected from one another. If you cut off a hand and you leave it on a side, you leave it on a table, it's just, it's just going to wither away and die because it's not connected to the source of life. Same with a foot or any other part of the body. If you cut it off, if you disconnect it, if you sever it from the rest of the body, it will shrivel up and die. And sadly, there are many people out there who might call themselves a Christian, but they don't belong to a local church. They're like a severed hand or a severed foot. And there are many out there who might think of themselves as a Lone Ranger Christian. They're floating along. But a Lone Ranger Christian it's a contradiction in terms. It's like a head without a body. But Jesus is the head, and he has a body, the church. Anyone who isn't part of his body isn't connected to him, isn't connected to the head. And tragically, I fear that there might be many people, perhaps even some sitting here, who think that they have confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. They enjoy the benefits of coming to church. They enjoy the benefits of being around God's people. But they might be deceived and going to hell because they've severed themselves from the body of Christ. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. And you might think that confession and conversion has happened in your own life, but if consecration hasn't happened, then there's no evidence that the other two have really happened. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church. If you are outside the church, you are not connected vitally to the church, and you are outside of what Jesus is building. You're not part of what Jesus is building, and you are outside the superstructure of his plan of salvation. So are you ready for your pop quiz no one knows the day or hour where each of us will stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords. Either he will come back or we will die and see him face to face. But a lot more is at stake than simply getting a good grade on a test. Your eternal destiny, your eternal future hinges upon this question, who is Jesus, and hinges upon your answer. God the Father reveals him as God the Son and Messiah to the church, to the church. Maybe you're here this afternoon on this ordination transfer service, and you're not sure if you've confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we as pastors, we implore you, we ask you, we beg you 
Turn to Jesus today. Surrender your life to Jesus today. Give up your sin. It's not worth it. It's not worth hanging on to. Surrender your life. There's grace for you today. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what's the Bible promise? You will be saved. You will be saved. You'll be rescued out of your sin, out of darkness, out of death, and granted eternal life with God forever. And maybe you're here this afternoon and uh, you think you've confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, but you've treated his church as optional. Imagine if I treated my wife as optional. Imagine for you as a husband and you, you treating your wife as optional. You tell your wife, well, I don't really want to commit myself to you. I want to keep my options open. I want to see other ladies. I want to see what's out there in the world. Uh, I don't want to settle down you'd probably tell me, that's no marriage at all. That's, that's no marriage. You're just kidding yourself. And if we say that this is my confession, that conversion has happened, but there's been no consecration, there's no, there, has been no, there hasn't been a set-apartness unto Jesus' body, the church, then you have to question whether those first two things have actually happened. Jesus died for his bride, the church, Jesus died for his body, the church. If you've treated as optional what Jesus has treated as central and essential, that for which Christ has died, then you need to repent. You need to tell God you're sorry for treating the church as optional. And yet there's, there's grace for you as well. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us all, all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So who is Jesus? God the Father reveals him as God the Son and Messiah to the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your one and only Son that we might live through him. Thank you that Jesus has saved a countless multitude from every tribe, language, and nation, a countless multitude through the ages, the church. Lord, what a joy that we get to be part of that. We get to be part of what 